Welcome to Trailblazing Entrepreneurs, the podcast series from Salesforce App Exchange. In our podcast series, we chat to world-class entrepreneurs and founders and explore their journey, as well as share practical insight to build successful businesses. I'm your host, Sandra Peignot, Director, ISV Industries at Salesforce. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Noe Collin, Partners at Salesforce Ventures. Noe calls us from London in the UK today. So, hi, Noe. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've been looking forward to this conversation because I think uh, Salesforce or Ventures in general is uh, something kind of quite close to my heart, something I'd be quite interested in. So, how did you fall into Ventures? It's a good question. Uh, that goes a long way back. I think I started in high school reading a bit about Silicon Valley and uh, the, the ecosystem that they've built, not just with great entrepreneurs, but also uh, investors that back uh, people with like crazy ideas or great ideas. There's probably a correlation between the two. Then following that the journey, essentially over the years, uh, have a soft spot for software, advised companies before, and always thought that, hey, it's actually much cooler to work with founders and entrepreneurs when they're in the early stages of building their company. And that's what led me to uh, to joining Salesforce Ventures. So focused on software, providing capital to high growth businesses that are building something truly unique. I love that. I mean, I think uh, I love the fact that you and I probably had very different reading materials in high school. You talk about reading about startups. I just I can 100% say that I don't think I was doing that. So uh, kudos to you. So tell us a bit more about Salesforce Ventures. Yeah, so uh, Salesforce Ventures is the uh, VC arm of Salesforce. We've been investing for about 12 years now. Started out on the West Coast and expanded, I think it was six years ago, to, uh, to the EMEA region. And our mission is essentially to invest in the most innovative cloud companies. So that includes software and fintech businesses globally to provide our customers with great innovation and value. And over the years, we've been very lucky to partner with what I call visionary founders of these businesses that are building category-defining companies. So that includes the likes of Snowflake, Sneak, Wiz, and, and several more. We are flexible in that we invest from early stage, so Series A, all the way to, uh, to IPO. And uh, with that, you know, we're backed by a very strong balance sheet. So we have a lot of capital available that is flexible. And so we can also invest in later stage round and keep backing those companies that, that are creating something uh, yeah, of true value. The way we work with those companies is, or create value for our portfolio companies is basically by providing access to the Salesforce cloud ecosystem. Salesforce customers, network of Salesforce execs. Yeah, think about like what are product opportunities? What are commercial opportunities? So that's something that, that really resonates with, uh, with founders and is, is differentiated from the more institutional VC firms that are mainly primarily focused on driving capital returns. That's interesting because I, I, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you at some point is, you know, is the Salesforce venture quite different from maybe some of the other sort of ventures? I'd say it is. And at the same time, it isn't. It isn't in the way that the way we work and have modeled uh, how we do our investments is very similar to an institutional VC firm. The, the pace that we can move at, the things that we look at in diligence and the kind of companies that we that we look at. What is different is that we have the backing of Salesforce and talking with with founders and portfolio company execs. Is Salesforce is seen as like the um, 
the basically the start of the cloud era. And so they look at Salesforce as you know being one of the first innovators in the space, and they can learn a lot from working with us. And and, and as I said, so th- the way they they work with us is you know we we open up basically the ecosystem that includes former founders who are now Salesforce execs for advice, whether that's around geographic expansion, sales organization, pricing, etc. And that's I think something that uh, a lot of companies are looking for because they want to move faster and the money is one thing but the the strategic advice and access that comes with it is uh, is is much more differentiated so that's at least what we get from a lot of our founders is that that's what they really like and then i haven't yet talked about the commercial opportunities so i think it's it's very relevant actually if we talk a bit about the app exchange so that is of course the the app store of salesforce right and what we look at, depending on the company, is can they quickly onboard on the app exchange to start selling? And what that provides is an, an additional distribution channel that they get access to. It's tens of thousands of, uh, of Salesforce customers. And uh, that's another very powerful thing. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting recipe because you, you seem like you are the... Um... You have an opportunity to access to money, access to advice and access to a market, which I think sounds to me like a, a great recipe. So actually, just tell me a little bit more about how do you find those companies or is it more outbound or is it more inbound in terms of how they come to you? Yeah, it's it's a bit of both. And um, I should mention that we are a pretty lean team. So I think historically, a lot of it has been inbound and inbound, I guess, is a, a couple of channels, right? It's um some befriended VCs that we work with have invested uh, with before, so joint portfolio companies. It's our portfolio companies, uh, company execs that recommend like, hey, potentially should look at this business. And then the broader network of just like relationships in the industry. I think what we're now seeing is these uh, rounds, they follow each other so quickly. And, you know, all these processes are moving so fast that, the outbound motion of finding those companies is actually very powerful because that enables you to to enhance the chance of getting an investment done. And we've been thinking about how to do that, go about that. I think what we found is that direct outreach actually is quite powerful because you can immediately speak with with a founder. And uh, I think that is maybe something that's changing in the industry, whereas before, you know, people were mostly counting on like warm intros. Now the cold outreach also works. And then secondly, it's it's uh, doing more research on like, okay, what, what are certain themes that we like? Who are the, the, the players in that space? Try to have conversations either directly with the company or with people that have some knowledge about the space and then figuring out, okay, which, which is the company that we want it back? I, that's another thing that's becoming more important. And I like that. What I was trying to figure out is what, how do you select them? You know, kind of the next level. You, so you talk about what is it that we want? So how do, how do you do that? How do you know what you want? That sounds like a big theoretical question, but you know. How do we know what we want? So I guess the related to the thematic pieces, we come up with something that we think is relevant in terms of a software category, but we also know that a lot of businesses are looking at this issue. And a lot of you know, during COVID, a lot of this came up, right? How can you collaborate better? How can you keep your workforce productive? So then you start to think about, okay, so what solutions are people actually looking for? You kind of map the landscape 
and then start having these conversations. So how do you select them? I think one that, you know, a couple of factors that really uh, stand out to me is one is the passion of the entrepreneur for solving a specific issue. You know, that, that is, that usually becomes clear in the, the, the initial conversation straight away of like, how are you thinking about this? And, you know, what is the bigger vision here? Because a lot of these companies that we back are still early. So what's the business going to look like in a couple of years down the line? Two is team. And we always ask the question of like, is this a team that can scale the business? It has to be part of the culture, right? Can you move fast? I would say uh, without breaking too many things. And are you in it for the, the long term? So it goes back to the passion. Like you have to have a real drive in order to, to create a big business and create a category leader. That's what we want to figure out. I think it's also about wanting to make sure that you are doing something special very different and a lot better than your competitors. And uh, there's a saying like, uh, you know, is is this product like 10x better than what is out there? That's kind of hard to measure, but it does help as a as a framework to how to think about this. Yeah, I like that because I was trying to figure out when you were talking, I could think about a lot of it seems like a, not a gut feeling, but, you know, non-data driven, you know, and I'm kind of a data driven person. I like to have some evidence backed, you know, make a decision. You and I do similar work, interestingly enough, but I don't have the uh, the capital of Salesforce Ventures behind me. But um, but what we do have is to have to make decision about, you know, is this a company we feel we can work together well? So this element of team you were talking about, this element of culture, you know, are we going to align? Are we going to clash? You know, does that work? So do you have any kind of uh, cheat sheet checklist, you know, in terms of how you do that. I'd love to understand that a little bit more, actually. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned it, like the, the gut feeling. It's, it's definitely important. I will say we, we look at the data, right? Like, you know, sure in you terms do. of the growth, <laughs> I wasn't the numbers, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, uh, like, you know, it, it is very important. But we also know that sometimes, like, say a company is at less than 10 million or even less than 5 million of revenue, the data is not necessarily going to tell you that much. And you need to think about like, what, what might it look like in the future? And that's where you need to figure out like, what are these, I guess, soft criteria that you're optimizing for? It becomes essentially a story of like, okay, you know, th- this is what the business looks like. These are some of the factors that we like. And this is why we think this is a potential winner. But being an investor, there are always going to be things that you simply don't know and can't predict. But... Yeah. So, so sometimes we say like, okay, we, we, we're making a bet here, but we feel good about this bet. There is uncertainty. We feel good about this bet because of X, Y, and Z. That's, that's really how we try to approach it here. I can really relate to that. I um, often use an analogy, although I'm not a gambler by any shape or form. You know, whenever I've been to Vegas, I, I bet about $5 on the table and I think I'm starting to get cold sweat. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, it's the same, you know, I always talk about, you know, you've got a couple of chips and you kind of, you want to place them on the right uh, numbers, but I still having some sort of comfort factor to say, actually, you know, it feels right, you know, and uh, how you sort of wrestle and that balance between the two. So I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of, uh, I think in the UK it's called Dragon's Den. In the US it's called Shark Tank, and and I kind of like to watch those uh, those episodes. And sometimes it's cringeworthy. Sometimes it's like, wow, absolutely awesome. So in your mind, how long is a perfect pitch that you've seen? What have you seen is kind of really blown you away? It's funny, yeah. I've only lost money in Vegas, by the way. So uh, I think we're in a in a similar place. Um, 
So on the on the pitch, uh, I've watched a Dragons Den Shark Tank, and uh, you know I, I love the concept. I think it's also really hard to make a decision right there and then based on just like a couple minutes. We try to spend more time with with those teams, right? The initial pitch I think is important to within the first two minutes really clearly explain where you're coming from and what you're trying to solve and that should then resonate with your audience. I do actually think prior to you pitching, it is important to first ask questions. So basically you, you build a bit of a profile of who you're talking to. Um, and I noticed that not a lot of entrepreneurs are doing this. Myself, we also pitch, right? So, you know, there are two sides of the table. We also pitch to entrepreneurs in order to like position us for a deal. And that's what I try to keep myself to is like, first ask a couple of questions. Then in two minutes, you could call it an elevator pitch. Really try to explain what you stand for, what you're solving for, and how it might be relevant to the person you're, you're talking to. I like your know your audience kind of tip, but I think the what and the why, I think, is, is the why I think we sometimes before forget is, you know, what challenges and what business problem are you actually solving? Um, and we spoke to someone uh, in the previous series, actually, and and they had a, a kind of a a spin-off version of the Shark Tank, which is called Baby Shark Tank. What it was is, is if you got to explain to, I don't know, a, a toddler or a kind of a young child, you know, what is it you do? That really forces you to take away some of the lingo and some of the assumptions you may do. So uh, maybe next time uh, you do your pitch, maybe you should try the, uh, the the Baby Shark Tank approach and then let us know how that went. <laughs> I uh, I love the idea. I uh, I think I should put in uh, you know some. I need to train a bit on that, but uh, I, I love the idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, talking about uh, ideas. So now you have. Let's just think about the process. You know, you find a company, whether it's inbound or it's outbound, and you kind of they've done the pitch. How do you validate the idea? You know, what's your thought process in, in getting that away from that maybe that gut feeling to that data driven approach we talked about earlier. You mentioned the what and the why, right? And I think the the third part to that is the how. So we maybe not in the initial pitch, like, but if we have time, we always do a product demo, and I think that is quite telling because then you get an immediate idea of how they're actually executing. I guess that feeds into to this question of like, how do you yeah, how do you validate it? Now there are a couple of ways that we try to come up with a view. And I think actually this is one advantage that we have versus some some other VC investors is we have a huge organization behind us that is working on a lot of these problems themselves, right? Whether it's cybersecurity or collaboration software with Quip or it's something related to uh, e-commerce, we can talk to all the relevant teams. They have great ideas about like what, what things should look like. So we can lean on our internal teams to basically understand, you know, is this an approach that works? What have they seen in the market? And would they potentially be interested in working with this company? And I think that's that's a key part of how we run our investment due diligence process. We also look for external signals in a way. So we try to speak with people in our network, you know, a bunch of experts and advisors that we uh, we often talk to, to get their views. and. That enables us to learn a lot about the market. You know, is there a big market opportunity here? 
about the competitive landscape. And equally, we also learn about, you know, is this in terms of what, what people are building, their approach, is this something that could work well in this, uh, in this space? So again, that is not necessarily, it, it is data-driven in the sense that, hey, you know, there's this multi-billion market that has ex existed for ages. What are the changes in that market such that you can figure out where is it headed and therefore, is this kind of company going to be successful? I can I can actually mention an example here. Within application security, the market was always very focused on security teams. Now, developers, and you know, you, you might have heard this, are actually becoming way more powerful and central to an organization because they built the software. Where do security issues often occur when they develop the software? So you might want to shift your application security solution so that your developers are going to start using it. And in the development pipeline, you already take care of all the issues that come up, the security issues that, that come up. And that's what Sneak has done. That's one of our portfolio companies. They build an amazing community of developers. So those are some of the things we try to think about, figure out like, hey, is this actually happening? Talk to as many people as possible to come up with a view there and see, you know, is, the, is that idea going to work? Then you also look at the actual numbers, right? So what is the growth looking like? Are customers buying a solution, et cetera, to, to validate the product market fit? Yeah, and that's interesting. It's about spotting trends, isn't it? Is, you know, in the example you've just used is how you move it upstream, I guess, away from the security team into the actual people that are going to develop the software. So you kind of change the, the deal. So how do you keep yourself I suppose, up to date on those trends and those trend spotting, because I guess that's part of the, the job, right? Right. It, it is part of the, yeah, this the, the daily routine in a way. I do think in doing all this work on the various deals, you, you hear so much about specific topics that are, you know, becoming more important or changes in the industry. But that is mainly for the portfolio companies that you've already invested in. So if you want to learn about a new space, you know, literature often. Uh, so there's a lot of research out there that talks about like what is happening in an industry. So you try to have some reading time. I try to be super flexible about it. Like it's not really work. It's more like learning. So you try to keep up with whatever is being, uh, is being produced in terms of research, but it's very, um, I'd say interactive. So Twitter is actually a great resource because if you follow some of the right people and I think it, it takes time to to build that build up like your your following your follower list. You get to see so many new ideas of people posting interesting things or articles or like views online that you'd never heard of, and try to like dig it a little deeper. <laughs> that is probably one of my most important resources uh, to learn more. I love that. I love that. There's uh, so much to say about Twitter and I could start the whole raft of conversation, which we haven't got time for. <laughs> but what was really interesting is uh, I heard a, another trick the other day where someone told me, which I kind of love the idea. I like to actually see how you react to that. I think uh, someone said to me, you know, in order to find what's the next thing, I always look at my target market. So let's say, I don't know, Walmart. And I look at what pattern they are releasing and I will tell me what they're thinking about. And I thought that was a genius idea. I kind of, I, I kind of never really thought about that. So uh, you probably have, but for me, I was like, wow, what a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah, I, lo I love that. I think uh, intellectual property is, is super important and uh, it, it's, it's pretty opaque. Like 
you have to do dig really deep in order to figure out like what is happening. So I, I, I think that's a great one. Uh, combine it with Twitter. Maybe there's a pad on Twitter or something like that. That's, this is it. There is a new business for us to actually to go. <laughs> I start building. What a wonderful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. So actually talking about, uh, okay, let's assume our idea is not going to go through. So, you know, what do you do when, uh, let's say you, you decide to turn down a company for reason X, Y, and Z? What would you recommend if, whether you or another venture sort of turns your idea down as an entrepreneur? Well, I think as an entrepreneur, you've probably spent a lot more time thinking about the problem, thinking about the opportunity and how you want to build your company. My, my key advice would be to not stop. That doesn't mean that you simply ignore the fact that you, you know, someone passes on, uh, on investing. It does mean, I think, that you need to think about, you know, can I get detailed feedback uh, from the people you've been talking to? Because it is, you'll learn a lot about how people are thinking about it. And companies turn down investment opportunities for so many reasons. Uh, and I think recently, actually, it's simply they don't have time. They're executing on so many different transactions that they don't have capacity. Like teams are pretty lean generally at VC firms. I try to really get detailed feedback because it it forces the VC also to think about like why why does this not work for us and that will help to um, to improve your your pitch your idea as well and I will say we do the same thing like we we get turned down you know it it happens and we try to understand like okay wh- why what's the reason for not picking us is there anything that you know is either a concern or we're not going to solve for you to try to figure out like, hey, is this something that we need to invest in uh, or need to adapt or pitch? I think that's the the most critical piece there. What's the most common reason why you turn down someone? Uh, questions about the market opportunity and competitive landscape. For us, we hear a lot like, hey, you know, we're, we're doing this and that's better than the next uh, vendor. But sometimes those factors are really like hard to... Um, hard to, de- to determine and hard to assess. I think some of the most successful collaboration software platforms, why are they successful? Well, one, they get to a customer the fastest. Two is their UI UX is some- simply like easy to use. People love using it. It's very hard to, you know, as an investor think about, okay, you know, that's, that's why I'm backing this company because it's uh, such a, it's in a way, a very soft factor. But equally, we've seen, many examples where the most successful businesses have the best design, have the best user onboarding, et cetera. I think, yeah, that, that's one of the things in terms of competitive landscape, trying to figure out like what is truly different about your, your product. That's probably a key reason there. Yeah, that's interesting because I think sometimes you can have the perfect products, but actually, you know, if you can't maybe articulate that differentiation or maybe the way it's sort of, you know, commercialized or the way that people can acquire or the user experience or the user journey or the services, no, it's, uh, and I think there's many examples in the market of, you know, products that were awesome, but actually didn't make it. Let's just fast forward. Let's imagine you and I were very successful with our sort of Twitter IP sort of idea, right? You know, Salesforce Ventures invested in it with filling all the right criteria, saying the right thing and do the perfect pitch. So as an entrepreneur, once you've got the funding, is the job done? What do you do next? How do you keep yourself pepped up and sort of ready for round two? Yeah, what do, what do you do next? So I think it is important. You have your business plan, 
that basically is part of your fundraise. That's what you're saying. Okay, with the, the money that I'm raising now, I'm going to be doing all of these initiatives. And so in, say, one to two years, I want my business to look like this. And I think what we often see is that there are a lot of different KPIs that you can look at. You know, definitely at the early stages, you only want to focus on, you know, one to three KPIs that you want to optimize uh, so that they look good when you're raising your next round. And it, it depends on the business what they should look like, right? Then based on those KPIs, you want to think about how am I going to get there? Usually it starts with hiring, hiring the best talent. And you lean on both your own people, uh, your network, your VCs in order to figure out like, one, what people are the best fit, two, which channel should we be hiring from? And, and three is like, how fast can I get people on board? That's probably like the, the first thing to focus on. And then as time goes by, you know, month after month, think about, you know, those KPIs are they trending in the right direction? And do you need to make changes? Uh, it could, could also be that between your fundraise, your current fundraise and the next one, that KPI changes because, hey, you know, you're making a change to the business, something didn't work out. And that's totally fine. But I think taking those moments in between to figure out like, hey, are we are we in the trending in the right direction? Are we doing the right thing? This is super important. No, I like that. And I think uh, in previous series, we had a uh... We had an interesting debate about, you know, when is the right time to hire? And it's interesting because you mentioned, you know, you get your phone and you start to look at hiring. And we had, I suppose, different, I guess, different point of view from some of the entrepreneurs to say sometimes the danger is you hire too a little bit too early and kind of have a couple of cycles of finding the right people. Then you could have spent more time selling so that you demonstrate more, I suppose, credibility, you know, to the market. That was a, an interesting sort of debate that people talked about is when is the right time to hire? And I don't know whether, you know, that's something that sort of resonates with you. Definitely. I, yeah. And I, I think it's it's better to to hire early and definitely if you're thinking about product R&D engineering, that's going to like your product is going to be the difference to make the difference. And once you have that in place and you're kind of like happy with it, you really need to start thinking about your go to market and start hiring the the, the right salespeople, marketing people, et cetera there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, actually. Uh, you hit it on the nail. I think it's not hiring as a blanket. It's probably more functional hiring, isn't it, in terms of sort of spending more time in products and product market fit. And then I think hopefully the sales will sort of uh, uh, come through. So I, I guess one last final question. So if you had one question that you wish that every prospective business you've spoken to, whether inbound or outbound, would ask you, what would that be? Only at Salesforce, I've started to see how the best conversations are typically held and mainly the sales conversation because what i notice is that a lot of i guess what you call sales conversations actually start out with salespeople, commercially minded people starts with, with asking questions they build a very comprehensive profile of the person sitting across from them about their needs about where they stand currently about some of the challenges that they're facing. And that's, I think, super important also when you're engaging with investors because you want to make sure that you tailor, adapt your pitch to the person sitting across from you. So 
you know, the, the one question I will say is like, how do you think about this problem and get them to talk first before you start with essentially selling, you know, the investment opportunity. And I, I see some founders do that, but not a ton. And the ones that do are often very, very effective. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's about relevance and, and building rapport. And I suppose, you know, listen, listen more and speak less. But how do you avoid it from turning into a bit of a Q, you know, Q&A? Because I've seen, I've seen the other way around, right? You know, people have done research on you. They've been on whatever platform they do, to do their research on. And it's like, okay, they kind of know what they're talking about. But sometimes it feels like, are you just asking me a question because you don't know what to say? Or are you asking me a question because you're trying to... Have you seen that happen? Yeah, I, I, I think I've seen that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's definitely something you want to avoid. And even like in the current environment where everything is over Zoom or like Google Meet, that can be even harder because you're not sitting across from a person. How do you avoid it? I think... Yeah, it's, that that in a way has to do with timing. So like figure out like maybe the three points that you want to understand about the person you're talking to and don't let that take more than, I, I guess, five minutes. And then start with your own story and, and really talk about like, what am I doing? What do I stand for? That is, I think, the, the key there. Noe, thank you so much for chatting with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode and check out season one and two in all the usual places where you get your podcast from, I will be back soon for another episode of Trailblazing Entrepreneurs. Until then, goodbye.